Yo. Gynostema T. <laughs> is this tea? It's kind of like green tea, but what, what did you call it? Dinosaur tea? Gynostema. Oh, gynostema, mm-hmm. not dinosaur. Yeah, I'm still trying to understand this, but basically, it's like this ancient Chinese way of making tea, where they take all of these leaves and brew them down into almost a syrup, and they mix mm-hmm. them, and then they take that and put it into tea bags. And then you can make tea out of it. There's no caffeine. There's no sugar. Nothing added. It's just it's just like a green tea, but it's a super green tea because it's all these leaves, all these different leaves. It's like a claim to be a longevity tea. I like it because it tastes good. Mm. And since I don't drink caffeine, I feel like I do get a little bit of energy from it. A little bit of hippity hoppity, bippity boppity. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sure. But uh, yeah, hey, dinosaur tea <laughs> in a store near you. <laughs> All right, let's get back into it. Here we are, season four, coming to an end. And it is all about shared American ideals. And as we all know, there are so many shades to today's America. That's right. And one of the big things that we see is that today, so often we forget that compassion is an important part of everything we do, every conversation. Uh, and everybody we see. So that's what we're here for. We're here to help anchor you into a space of compassionate conversation. And today's conversation is a really great example of what compassion is all about. We are with Pierce Godwin, the founder of the National Conversation Project, and we get into so many things like his optimistic outlook on the future, We talk about perspective on how we started sliding into this Advent disagreement and all the different causes that he sees as being helping perpetuate that. We talk about how we got to this place after years after years of him being in actual politics. So we talk about amazing things. He's an amazing individual. We're super excited to bring this conversation to you today. That's right. Yeah. Just check it out. Once again, I'm going to remind you to follow us on the socials, More In Common Pod. Also, head out to our website, moreincommonpod.com. And if if you like what you hear in this or any episode, share it. Because sharing is caring, and it really helps us spread the, the, the mission and the cause that we have of anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. So let's, let's get after it. Let's go. All right, I'm going to stop recording. Uh, But optimism, I think, at least requires that that you see a path and an opportunity for things to be better. And certainly better can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on our perspectives. But I think there's some core ways in which we recognize the need to be better in terms of our our, our connections, our empathy, um, our belonging, um, our respect for one another, and indeed at the risk of you know being overly you know woo woo or spiritual, indeed loving one another, indeed finding love for for our um, for our fellow man and our, and our fellow woman. Um, without it, we're just going to keep tearing each other apart and tearing the society apart and tearing the state and the market and everything else that is downstream from culture um, apart. And I don't think whatever our passions, whatever our our rage, um, often justified, I don't think any of us ultimately want to live in a society that is defined by how we're different uh, as opposed to common hopes and dreams, common values around freedom, equality, an opportunity. I don't think that's a space that any of us ultimately want to live in. So before we get into it, I just want to talk about audible.com because I love it. I do audiobooks all the time when I'm driving around LA. It's how I love to, it's, it's my preferred way to get books in, frankly. Specifically, I want to talk to you about Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. It's coming to Audible July 15th. Now, I've put off reading this graphic novel and this series of novels because, well, I just got a lot going on, but I'm going to get it. It's in my pre-order list right now. Uh, You should think about it. If you've never used Audible, you get 
a free book and you can go to our website and click the link and use that to get your free book. We do get a little on the back end and we appreciate you for the support. So Neil Gaiman, I would also say Norse Mythology, really good book. The Audible book is actually read by Neil himself. I really appreciate how he puts his personality into the writing. A little bit funny, uh, some new stories or or twists, new twists on stories uh, from the Norse world that my fantasy nerd self likes. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today we are with Pierce Godwin, described as the national voice for bridging divides, is founder and CEO of the Listen First Project, which we are super happy and proud to be a part of. Um, He is the executive director of the National Conversation Project, and leader of the hashtag Listen First Coalition of 300 partner organizations. He catalyzes the hashtag Listen First movement to mend the frayed social fabric of America by building relationships and bridging divides. His passion is combating the universally felt crisis of distance, division, and dehumanization across differences with conversations that prioritize understanding. Now, Pierce graduated from Duke University, having grown up in North Carolina, and received an MBA from UNC Chapel Hill. He spent five years working in Washington, D.C., super fun, um, in the U.S. Senate and as a national political consultant for presidential and statewide campaigns. Certainly a a place to hear division, right? Um, Before moving home to North Carolina in 2013, Pierce spent six months in Uganda, Africa, where he wrote, It's Time to Listen, referenced in the show notes. That message, printed in dozens of papers across the United States, launched the Listen First Project and led thousands to sign the Listen First Pledge. I will listen first to understand. And in 2018, Pierce helped create the first national week of conversation and hosted the kickoff event Listen First in Charlottesville. Pierce then launched the overarching collaborative movement platform, National Conversation Project, which scales the hashtag Listen First movement by promoting annual national weeks of conversation, Listen First Fridays, rapid response and featured conversations on major issues, locally focused Listen First movements, and any conversation creating social connection. The Listen First movement has been recognized by journalists at CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, USA Today, the Associated Press, and the New York Times, as Pierce has spoken about the mission on national television and to live audiences around the world. Super excited to have you here today, Pierce. And it's so uh, good to be here. I tried hey. to trim that one down like I normally try to do, but I just couldn't. <laughs> There's just too much goodness in that. So, hey. um, Pierce, you're a bit of a baller, man. Now, after having started the Listen First project due to your perspective, seeing the divisiveness we all see so often, especially in your perspective as a political consultant and working in the Senate, now that you've started this National Conversation Project, you have over 300 organizations, you've got sponsorship of the um, Weaving Community Campaign from many different organizations, um, large and small. Are you starting to see a little more optimism as as a result of the sheer size of the movement you've built? I am. And guys, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. Um, as you all know, I, I'm personally very optimistic by nature. I've uh, been accused of being Pollyannish um, <laughs> over time, which led me to Google to look up what the heck that meant. Um, <laughs> Definition <laughs> in the show notes, in case you're wondering. <laughs> but but um, Rose-colored you know, glasses might be a synonym. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do continue to have a lot of optimism that we can turn the tide of rising rancor and deepening division. Um, you know, certainly when I was uh, on that bus between Uganda and, and Kenya, and in some ways, you know, looking forward to to coming home, not even so much from Africa, but coming home to North Carolina from years uh, in Washington, which were wonderful in their own right, but um, but but lacked, you know, something that, that I was looking for back home in North Carolina. Um, and, and just seeing that, you know, my beloved little home state um, was making national headlines for folks being at each other's throats for just vitriol across differences. And I'm thinking, hold on a second. I thought I left Washington. I thought I left, you know, the crazy, you know, rancor um, of, uh, of inside the beltway. Um, but to realize 
that it was, you know, truly spilling into to our main streets um, and into our personal relationships, into our families, uh, was deeply disturbing. As I'd been in a place, you know, in, in Uganda, like like many other parts of the world, I think, uh, especially in Africa, where despite you know some abject material poverty, there is such relational and spiritual wealth. And I'm thinking, hold on a second, y'all. I'm about to go back to you know uh, America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, the most prosperous you know, lucrative nation uh, on the planet. So material wealth through the roof, um, you know, in a national sense, um, but such abject poverty in relationship. Now, this was 2013, and now we're in 2020. Um, and, and sadly, I think we've all recognized that that problem has only gotten worse. Um, but I do remain optimistic. I have this, you know, perhaps naive, but but deep, belief in you know goodness within mankind and all of us having been you know created with with the image of god within us and and the opportunity to love our neighbors as ourselves with the opportunity to see that there just is not that much that divides us perspective sure politics sure color of our skin absolutely age education you name it but i i, I feel like um Many of us, if not all of us, can, myself included, um, you know, gain a deeper appreciation for the humanity that's across the table, that's across the television screen, that's across the computer screen on Twitter or, or Facebook. Um, and maybe I'm crazy. Maybe we won't get there. Um, but I think we have to. I think we have to if we don't want the current trajectory that, that our society is on to result in, you know, absolute and total breakdown. I already told you all I'm Mr. Optimistic and, you know, Pollyannish according to some. <laughs> so I'm not, you're not going to get much chicken little sky is falling out of me, but I'm scared. I'm especially scared uh, right now um, in light of the compounding crises that that we're facing. But to answer your question, you know, my optimism is still there and I wouldn't continue to, to do this work and, and be so inspired by the partner's um, we have, um, if I, if I wasn't still optimistic, how do you define optimism? What some of the, some of the things you just said, I, I'm get, I, pre, I'm presuming that you have a, the way, the way it sounds like you enact it is a lot like how Keith and I think about it, but I'm curious how you define optimism. Mm. I think for me, optimism is, uh, in a future sense, which is really where my head is right now, it, it's believing that things can be better. I'm not even sure it has to go all the way to to will be better. There's certainly that's part of optimism is you know seeing the glass half full, whether it's present tense or or future tense. But uh, but optimism, I think, at least requires that that you see a path and an opportunity for things to be better. And certainly better can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on our perspectives. But I think there's some core ways in which we recognize the need to be better in terms of our, our, our connections, our empathy, um, our belonging, um, our respect for one another. And indeed, at the risk of, you know, being overly, you know, woo-woo or spiritual, indeed loving one another, indeed finding love for, for, our, um, for our fellow man and our, and our fellow woman. Um, Without it, we're just going to keep tearing each other apart and tearing the society apart and tearing the state and the market and everything else that is downstream from culture um, apart. And I don't think whatever our passions, whatever our our rage uh, often justified, I don't think any of us ultimately want to live in a society that is defined by how we're different uh, as opposed to common hopes and dreams, common values around freedom, equality, and opportunity. I, I don't think that's a space that any of us ultimately want to live in. And I'm seeing more and more. I mean, for me, it happened to be, you know, 2013 on a bus in Africa very much, I think, because of the experience I'd been having there. But I'm seeing more and more people reach that point where concern and fear for what defines our society and our culture and our relationships um, in some ways becomes preeminent over some of our um, policies and, and, and preferences um, and opinions uh, that may um, that may not be as big a deal, may not be as much of a good versus evil fight in some cases, 
um, as as we make them out to be in tribal warfare. Have you? you oh, sorry. Um, go ahead, Keith. Yeah, I'm wondering, based on your experience and having been doing this now for you know a long time, relatively speaking, where do you see this coming from? This like, is what... ridiculous. This is exactly what I was about to ask you. <laughs> I love our twin <laughs> moments, man. Because, <laughs> um, like, I, you know, it's funny. It, just adding some context behind my specifics behind my question. I'm often reminded uh, when Roddy and I used to work together in 2006, 2007 um, at a company Chi-Town? in Chicago. What's that? I said Chi-Town. Chi-Town. And in Chicago. And there was a group of four of us that would go to Quiznos and we had Rodney and I pretty much balancing the edges of the middle, right? Like, you know, he's on maybe at that time, a little more on one side where I was more on the other at that point. And then we had two friends who were extreme represent, well, not like, like alt-right and like, you know, super, but like they represented the the, the left and the right positions mm-hmm. uh, in mainstream politics. They and they would just and they were best friends, and they would yell at each other at lunch. And we would be there, and we would have this just this conversation, just massive disagreement, and then all walk back just happy go lucky, super thrilled that we did it at a time when I decided to start watching the news because I wanted to contribute more to the conversation at work. That stuff is gone now and everybody's so afraid to talk about it and i'm curious to get your take on how where where what was the start of that downward slide yeah there there are so many factors and i'll i'll raise a few of them many of them are are interrelated um i'll start with not just my perspective but the perspective of americans at large um you know in some polling we find americans you know blaming three major factors for what you can think of as the social polarization crisis. And, and, and let me say a word just to, to define that, you know, polarization, there's, you know, scientific meanings as well. But for the purposes of this conversation, you know, polarization is just kind of moving further and further apart to the extremes. If we're talking about issues, um, no problem, you know, whatever. Variety is the spice of life. It would be super boring if all of us Americans had the same perspective on, on the way forward in any particular issue. So the polarization of issues is not, in my view, in and of itself bad, but um, you know, bring a, a kind of fancy word to the table, effective polarization, effective with an A, which is affect, you know, emotion. Um, that's what we're seeing, uh, in my view, tear America apart. And that means I'm not just opposed to your position. I'm opposed to you as a person. Um, and so when we talk about that effective polarization, that's really what we're talking about is that we don't just disagree, but we dislike, distrust, even despise one another because they see the world differently. So what do Americans at large blame for that? unsurprisingly, 75% say it's those politicians' fault. It's all those crazy people in D.C. that can't get along and that are stirring us up. Um, and I, I, I don't, you know, absolve, in, in my humble opinion, politicians of some culpability. At the same time, let's not pass the buck. I think it's every bit as much my fault um, and many of our faults who don't necessarily serve in, in positions of leadership. Um, number two, kind of uh, most blamed factor is internet and social media. Number three is the news media. So I, I wouldn't, you know, quabble too much with the American people's perspective on, on some of those factors. Uh, but again, I think um, underlying all that is human nature. And it is in our nature to be tribal as us versus them. We often find identity and belonging as part of a group. Uh, and unfortunately, but across history, that belonging can come often in opposition to another group, um, you know, tried and true, um, you know, rallying people together. We've seen it across our own history in war times. In opposition to another, um, create some very tight bonds. Um, so I think that human nature to be tribal as us versus them is is a major factor. We've seen also, you know, kind of from a political ideological perspective, we've seen diverging reactions to relentless economic, demographic, and cultural changes that are reshaping American life. You've got some people cheering that on. You've got some people, you know, deeply uncomfortable. And those divergent reactions uh, to what objectively is incredibly rapid change 
um, over especially recent decades, never mind century, um, in America is a big factor. We've seen political parties starkly divided over these trends, which has created this phenomenon that, that's talked about by the academics as you know the purification of the parties. So talking about you know the Republicans and the Democrats, they tend to these days be much more ideological, homogeneous within, uh, but divergent between. So whereas, and you can see this from Pew and many other places, whereas you used to have plenty of overlap, whether it was on a certain issue, um, oh, you know, I'm, I'm you know, pro-Second Amendment, but I'm also pro-choice. You know, you would have all sorts of different kind of intermixing between the party platforms, if you will. Um, but these days, you know, we've seen that all of those identities, even when you get into to racial and other demographics and geographic, rural, urban, uh, rural and, and urban, so many of those have just kind of collapsed under this red-blue thing, this RD thing. So that's, that's uh, obviously a tough spot when you have um, two teams that are increasingly polarizing and, and, and nary the two shall, shall overlap as they, they used to in the past. A few more. You know, our electoral system certainly can incentivize more extreme positions and discourage compromise and even conversation across divides. But the big sort, and of course, there was a you know book about this that, that's, uh, that's you know, canonical from several years ago. Um, but that idea that we're just not even around that many people who are different these days, we don't even know them. I think about my friends, and I'm probably a coastal elite, but I think about my friends, you know, on, on the East Coast who said, I don't understand how Donald Trump got elected. I don't know a single person um, who voted uh, for the president. So that is uh, just increasingly true that we genuinely don't even know anybody else. So never mind understanding um, and empathy, um, but that complete lack of familiarity and proximity to others is a big factor. The balkanization of the media, right? How easy is it for us to hear what we want to hear from people who look just like us, to have our own facts, to match our opinions? Certainly, as we saw Americans blaming um, social media, we do have this social media cacophony uh, and anonymity that allows us to just attack, just attack, because you know what? It feels good sometimes. I mean, it does, right? We're, we're, we're all just humans at the end of the day, but let's just throw those bombs and, and feel a little bit better about ourselves, just like you know uh, we, we might've felt in middle school. That never quite goes away. And so social media indeed has its value, no doubt about it, but it's not conducive to thoughtful or sober conversation. And, and the last point I'll make on this, um, it has a really interesting um, relevance to what we're experiencing in 2020 America. You know, one of the factors that that I've long said um, may have contributed to this increasing social polarization, animosity between people, is a lack of a major external threat, right? So, you know, thank God we haven't had a major external threat in terms of war, nation states, terrorism in the last couple decades. But, you know, 9-11 was, you know, the last time prior to recent months that I think we were reminded of um, and united around our common identity as Americans, in that case against a common uh, enemy. There, there's a concept called asteroid theory that I often think about, um, and it's, it just notes the power of a common threat to unite us. The idea is that, hey, if you and I are, are having, we're like your friends, right, we're at each other's throats in the middle of a restaurant, then we look out the window and there's an asteroid careening down on us. Well, suddenly we're on the same team. Suddenly we are, you know, fighting for one another's survival shoulder to shoulder. Um, and I've always wondered if, if that has to happen, do we have to go to war? Do we have to have some sort of a common enemy that we can unite against? You know, I, I've often thought that, that right now the common enemy we've got to unite against is from within. It is a threat of our own creation. But of course, this year, um, we've seen a common enemy that not many of us were anticipating, and it's a virus. It's microscopic. You can't see it, but it's a pandemic. And, and I have hoped that one of the silver linings, if you will, that one of the, the fruits of so much pain, so much devastation, would be essentially that asteroid theory, that this pandemic, this coronavirus attacking all of us, not knowing lines of party or race or geography, um, would remind us of our common humanity and, and unite us together. And we've seen a lot of evidence of that in polling, but I fear we're seeing ourselves rebound quicker than, um, than even the most pessimistic um, commentator might have anticipated. So I really fear that for a hot second, we may have experienced that, um, but even that may not be holding. You, you see those three pillars, politicians, internet, social, 
And, you know, I, maybe we get into the definition of news media and what that actually means these days. Um, but the, they're <laughs> breaking down the asteroid theory from a common enemy. And now suddenly it's a politicized enemy that, you know, you can't see and touch. And it's almost as if an asteroid actually needs to be coming at us where we can mm. all see it in the sky in order yeah. for this to, to, to happen these days. And yet that will be too late because there's nothing we yes. can do about it at that Ooh. point. An observation from, I mean, my first observation, Pierce, is that you are obviously not at all connected to any of this and you've not researched <laughs> any of it. And we have nothing to learn from you. No uh, idea what you're talking about. That's the first observation. <laughs> the gig is up. <laughs> second observation. I'm calling BS. <laughs> uh, you know, it's those three things, it's just... I don't know why I was doing this because I knew it wouldn't be in there, but I was really hoping like one of the one of the top three was going to be like myself, like me. I'm part of the problem. Um, and it's really sad that it's not. And then on, I guess, a third observation would be the asteroid theory part. Like it's it's weird that we need to it, I, it almost seems like at, at this day and age, if one was actually coming, there would still be a group that'd be like, nah, man, that, ain't that's Bill us. Gates trying to sell a vaccine. Um, <laughs> and 5G. 5G is the problem here. But the thing about it is there is an asteroid. There are multiple asteroids mm. actually careening towards us. And here in this country, race is, it, it's never gone away. It's never not been an issue. And it, it is... It is decimating us. It is keeping us from being that beacon, that city on a that city on a hill that we aspire to be. And there's always going to be issues. I'm not saying like mm -hmm. like I'm not you know I'm not looking at the um, I'm not going to utopia world, but mm -hmm. uh, I you know I see I see multiple asteroids. Um, but that's it. yeah, you 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 just dropped some bars on us right there that make me want to ask because I want to go into all of that. But first, I want to know, like, how, why, why, how do you, how do you get into all this? Like, why, how, what's the spark for you in your life for understanding the divisions of Americans and starting a listen first project, which very clearly in the name talks about what, what you think the solution is. But like, what, what, what's the road to get you to here? Especially since you went to politics first. Mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i mean you grew up in north carolina right right start there um yeah you know very um my my story of 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 literally the path that got me here um was that that i have loved uh politics i've joked over time this is my third favorite sport between basketball and football um <laughs> so i've always been excited about the horse race excited about you know the us versus them from a, you know, partisanship, uh, point of view. Um, and so that's why, you know, I majored in public policy and I headed on up to, uh, to Washington DC and, and, and worked in politics. And I was, I was a political animal, you know, and I happened to be, you know, on the Republican side of things. And so, you know, the, the R versus D thing was fun, you know, the, the battle of ideas. And, and, and I want, I would note, you know, Politics is not evil, right? Politics is is the exchange of ideas, the sorting through of ideas, the debating of ideas. It's how a society functions and governs itself. So it is not inherently evil. Um, and I don't even think there's anything wrong with, I mean, if you believe in what you believe in, then of course you're going to, from an electoral standpoint, from a debate standpoint, you know, try to defeat the other. That That's all well and good. That's fine in a well-functioning democracy. Um, I'd like to think that I, you know, mostly stayed on that side of, um, of the spectrum, but undoubtedly, you know, I found myself having animosity and, 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 and judgment towards and dismissal of and demeaning of people that, um, that, that, you know, didn't see things the way I did because obviously I was right. Um, but, um, but, but even then right. I think some, I think something was beginning to, uh, to prick me even in Washington that, I just kind of feel like I, I want to be serving a higher purpose here. It's not even just the political thing. Honestly, it was it was every bit as much a personal thing that I felt like I was in D.C. I, I've joked with with people who know me well. I think in some ways Washington D.C. was too good of a fit for me. 
um, because I'm I'm such a striver. I'm such an achiever. I want to I, I want to make an impact. I want to be known. All of the, all the worst you know parts of my human instinct I think were were fed in 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 DC. Um, overworking, putting work over relationships, just the whole thing. Um, so there was there was at least this sense that I, I want to do something bigger. I want I want to serve something bigger. And uh, you know, so wanting to get back home to to North Carolina, I used to joke with folks, it'll either be tomorrow or in retirement. Who knows? But I do want to go back home to the good old South, to America, um, and uh, at, at some point across my lifetime. And you know, the the, the chips fell into place for me to go ahead and do that. But uh, was so thankful that you know, in, in my worldview, you know, God opened up a, an opportunity for. Uh, for me to go over to Uganda for those six months to kind of have this this pause um, in uh, between my DC chapter and, and my back home in North Carolina chapter and uh, honestly without that experience in, in Uganda I, I it's an interesting thought experiment maybe you know what what role would I be playing these days as this as this program pro, uh, problem escalates um, but uh, it, I don't imagine it would have been this one without those six months in Uganda, without seeing modeled for me such relational wealth, such um, bonds, such connections, such mutual support, despite this abject material poverty. And so, you know, if, if I didn't have that six-month background and context, when I looked back you know, towards the U.S. just before coming home and said, what is happening? And hold on a second. It's right here in my backyard to be in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, not just in Washington. Something's not right. And I just started jotting down thoughts. This was not some master plan. Hey, maybe seven years from now, um, I'll be part of, you know, a, a national campaign with all these organizations and with all these, you know, prominent influencers. This, this, this was not in the plan. I had some thoughts. I couldn't fall back asleep on the bus. And I thought, Hmm, that's an idea. Let me write that down. Um, and next thing I knew, I had a blog post and I thought that's all it was um, until, uh, as you all mentioned, it ended up being picked up uh, by newspapers all over the country. And it was like, hey, there's something here. I didn't I, I wasn't branding any Listen First project. I just called the thing. It's time to listen, because that felt like in that moment on an overnight bus ride, that that's what we need to do. We need to listen to each other. Um, that That's the only way we could move beyond slander and, and seek some common ground. So um, I just kind of went off, frankly, um, out of out of frustration uh, of what I was stepping back into uh, in America. So that's that's my story, and since that moment, that's been my passion. And 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 uh, because of the energy that has come around that vision, energy that was already there across so many organizations, uh, for obvious reasons, many more organizations kind of came online after the 2016 election. But there were a lot who have been trudging this path long before um, I had been, but to recognize how much energy was out there to build relationships and bridge divides, to mend the frayed social fabric of America, and realizing that, hey, maybe we can pull that together, but then also seeing kind of, as I mentioned, new energy come online, to go and do my weekend executive MBA program at Carolina, fulfilling my birth destiny after I disgraced everybody that knew me going to Duke as a rabid Carolina Tar Heel fan. Uh, but 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 that that those MBA colleagues saying, yeah, yeah, whatever, you got this marketing job, survey research, like that's fun, whatever. But what, what did you say about a, a nonprofit thing you do on the side? Because for those first four years, it was just a side hustle, um, as the kids say. Um, but, uh, but, but for them to be like, there, there's something, there's something here, Pierce, um, let us help you out. Um, so this has been far from a one man show, um, when it was a one man show, it wasn't going anywhere. Um, but you know, to have that, that collaborative energy, that firepower of, of people around me to try to make something of this, to try to make it something that can penetrate the mainstream, can aggregate a line and amplify all of these various efforts to reach farther and impact greater than any any one of us could alone has just been this this evolution, this steady drumbeat. And certainly um, what I've seen across the field and in my own heart is that when something really acute happens in America, um, we recognize the opportunity to serve. This thing that, you know, people may have been slowly coming around to, oh yeah, whatever. I guess we should listen first to understand. Yeah, it'd kind of be nice if we just weren't at each other's throats and define what we're by what we're against, not what we're for. Yeah, that'd be cool. Whatever, Pierce. Um, but then these moments happen um, and people say, this, this isn't right. This isn't the kind of society I want to live in. 
Um, but just to, to circle quickly back to, to one thing uh, you mentioned, I, I pulled up the stats because it's in a, it's in a PowerPoint that I had put forward. Um, you said, Rodney, you were really hoping that one of those top three would be um, me. I'm the problem. Uh, so not only did it not make the top three, but <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, but uh, the way the way I framed this point in presentation is, and it's all their fault mm-hmm. because Weber Shanwick, you know, survey showed that you know 94 percent of us say we are always or usually polite and respectful to others. 94%. So 6% of Americans are creating all of this division, all, all of it's this like, discord. It's like Graham <laughs> says about, you know, how when you ask people if they're good at listening, more than <laughs> what, seven in 80, 90% of people say they're above average, therefore they're right. average, right? right. Like, <laughs> the exactly. average is apparently really, really good. I don't exactly. know what the expectation is. Yeah. Right. And, and, and as, as, as that question continues, uh, only 24% of people in the United States are usually polite and respectful to others. So three quarters aren't, but 94% of us say we are. So there, there's a there's a bit yeah. of a disconnect there. Such a, psych- um, a, a psychological analysis there. Yeah. There's so I want to go back to something and then I kind of want to come back to what you just said because it's like two really profound things just happened for me you said of your experience in Uganda that there was an immense amount of relational wealth and then you said some other stuff despite material poverty like in my limited American mind that's not possible Hmm. Um, and yet I know that it is because I've been fortunate enough to think more outside of the you know, some will call it a scarcity model some will call it a whatever you want to call it like that if you have i can't have kind of model and i just that was that i can see how that leads to where you are mm. um that's a very profound observation and statement at least for me at least um can i yeah. ask a question on that so yeah. There's this interesting pivot that takes place. First of all, I want to ask, are you still a Republican? Mm. Um, it, it, I'll, I'll answer honestly and literally. And, and, and that is when, uh, when I was having you know, my license renewed within the last couple of years, um, they said, oh, you know, you want a registration? Like, oh, th- th- this is a moment. Let me go ahead and be, let me go ahead and be unaffiliated. Um, so I'm not literally speaking uh, anymore. Um, I, just side note, little comic relief. I'm a millennial. You give me a piece of paper. I got to put something in the mail and find a stamp and go through this whole registration process. Um, to, to be honest with, to be honest with you all in light of what I've seen happen in what was my Republican party, um, over recent years, um, it was literally on my list to update my voter registration. But again, I ain't got no stamps sitting around and a letter, so it just hadn't happened. But but yes, when when, when I when I found it sufficiently convenient at the DMV, I did update I did update my registration uh, uh, to unaffiliated. Uh, and and so many yeah. Um, that's too uh, real. That's too. I was talking to a friend last night about yeah. po- about voting and about how like I want to be engaged. I hate the news, so I just don't follow that. But like when election time comes up, I want to know like who I'm voting for. But what ends up happening, like I get the ballot and I'm like, cool, I got two months. I can research. They did mm-hmm. have to research for me. They have websites. And then the night before, I'm like, shit, I got to look these people up and see what they believe. Because <laughs> yeah. I, on the list. It's- it is. That, mm-hmm. that life, life gets in the way of the things that aren't part of it every single day, right? Keith, I yeah. just want to go to the same thing. Because firstly, thank you for crushing my spirits a little further um, with the, the further data. Um, but in, in, uh, Simon Sinek's most recent book, uh, the infinite game, he talks about self-deception and talks about leaders of company, CEOs doing nefarious things and the self-deception that allows to happen. And that I, I had to turn and look at myself because there's been many, a many thing where I've just been straight lying to myself. I'm great at this, or this is okay because mm-hmm. of this and was pure, like just point blank wrong um but looking at that has allowed me to see how well my mind is able to adapt 
to and rationalize almost anything. I mean, I didn't murder somebody and call it good, but I, like I'm able to rationalize things that I just that I don't agree with. Think about that. So there's, there's this um, on that line of thought, and then I actually have a question. Going back to the whole three things that people and Rodney, your critical observation that me just doesn't seem to be a part of the top three, let alone the top at all. Um, yeah, there's this like in in the nature of your mission and listen first and listening. There's this one thing that I find critically missing in a lot of a lot of people. Maybe it's an influx of information. Maybe we're processing too much. Maybe we're just physically, we're just mentally fatigued. So we no longer critically think about the information that comes our way. Um, I don't know if it's an education thing. I don't know what the problem is. But, you know, for me, I, I want to challenge people to critically think for themselves and not just regurgitate the things that they're told. And I think that alone, along with listening more to the other perspectives, breaks down just every influence politicians internet and social in the news media have on the discourse not that they won't still operate the same way but their influence is different and i just think critical thinking is a complete shit show right now amongst people um, absolutely and then i'll just just say quickly on that you know to to rodney's point um and, and i be totally candid with you guys i have to check my heart um on my own judgments of of people acting tribal Amen uh, because yeah. because because i have every last bit of that inside me as well yeah um, and, and and it's flared mm. up you know plenty of times I, I try to practice what i preach but i'm often not very good at it that, that said yeah yeah that said um it has been incredibly discouraging for me personally to see people i know love and respect from my humble perspective tie themselves in knots in order to justify for themselves and for anybody else support of a position a party a leader whatever and I'm, I'm not pointing at any one side over the other there's plenty of examples to go around but truly as as you mentioned rodney just feeling like and again checking my own heart as well i'm sure i could do it and probably have done it but uh it's just it's it's hard to watch and i think what that tells me is that for far too many of us our core identity these days might not be our religious values might not be our upbringing might not be the good lessons from our parents and our community uh i think we get in a really scary place if our core identity is a political tribe it doesn't just have to be political we've talked about politics a lot here and i yes that's my background but but i really try to emphasize that it ain't just that i think there are there are probably dangers um to for our our racial tribe our geographic tribe our religious tribe for any of that to become a higher identity than our values than our principles than 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 our love for our fellow man um, and I'm afraid that's what I've seen happen in a way in recent years that truly boggles the mind um, and, and has been deeply dispiriting and, and, and at times depressing for me that, that we could be so committed to being against them that, man, I don't know if there's any limit to what we can justify in terms of what we support to keep ourselves in the tribe we want to be a part of. And so no against it's them like, and so not for ourselves. It's like you've been in the last like three or four conversations that Keith and I have had. <laughs> um, the, the, the identity, the core identity, like that thing, like, because when you start questioning why you're holding a position so fervently, you know, things can start to crumble. And, but, and, and that gets scary when your identity is attached to something that's not to keep the conversation we had this morning. Brene Brown talks about core values. Yes. When you're away from your actual core value, you can't, it's, it's, a, it's a wobbly foundation that you know is fake, even if you don't admit it. And it just causes conflict and strife. And um, so, one thing I want to do is uh, get, maybe have you talk to us a little bit more about Listen First and like where, you are today uh weaving community and 2020 has been the year that has been punching us in the face over and over hurricane season just started yesterday 
So it's about to get more real. Like, where are you right now with Listen First and how can people participate? Yeah, um, thanks. If um, if I can, I'll, I'll first just share kind of my my latest thoughts on, on where we are um, in America. And, uh, and and you'll see these in in USA Today soon. But, you know, I've the other night I, I literally couldn't fall asleep. Um, somebody said, you know, in light of everything happening in America, Pierce, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if you want to make some sort of a, um, a statement, some sort of a comment, um, because this weaving community campaign, which just real quick, you know, background, I'll interject. Um, we were all gearing up for the third annual national week of conversation. It was going to be April 17 through 25. Um, and then coronavirus shows up. Um, and the field, um, the whole Listen First Coalition, this whole field that's about weaving community and bridging divides said, you know, not only is this clearly going to have an impact on this idea of bringing people together in conversation in April, but we need to respond now because this isn't just a health crisis. This isn't just an economic crisis. This is a social crisis. So um, at that point in, in early March, you know, this idea of having National Week of Conversation 2020 with the theme of weaving community and divided nation in, in close partnership with David Brooks and his weave project at the Aspen Institute. Um, it became weaving community during crisis, an ongoing campaign that as, as we sit here and talk today, I, it could be years, it, who knows. Um, but that campaign is all about encouraging acts of bravery and connection that help us you know, heal the pain of the pandemic, heal the pain and the wounds across now, or even more focused on the long history um, and, and the complicated history um, of America, such that together we could weave the future we want and that be a stronger future, that together we could create the life that we want um, for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and for our nation. So that that campaign continues to, to gain steam, as, as you all have mentioned. You know, it, it's reached seven and a half million people organically on social media with hashtag weaving community. Um, and, and just now, you know, one of the supporters you mentioned is, is Facebook, who's very generously come behind the weaving community campaign. Um, so we're now able to have some paid advertising that'll hopefully reach, you know, millions more in terms of, you know, how, how to get engaged. The weaving community, you know, campaign is at weaving.us. Um, would love for people to put on the map, very literally, where they are, um, how they are weaving community, how they are connecting and sharing authentically with one another what they're experiencing, how they're caring for themselves and others, and as I mentioned, how they see that we might create together the life that we want. So just simply using that hashtag weaving community um, and going to the website is is an important step um more broadly though i'm seeing that america um, right now is crying out in pain we had this pandemic that was marked by physical distancing spark hope of social solidarity across differences um, these differences that have increasingly defined us we had polling early um in the pandemic say hey we're feeling more united we're feeling like we need to listen and maybe even compromise more than just dig in and fight all of these numbers that I've, you know, have scared me and that I've scared others with uh, that, that have inspired Listen First Project and National Conversation Project took a dramatic turn in the right direction. Yet, uh, as, as we sit here today, uh, our hearts and our streets are burning with rage over injustice, callousness and cruelty. You know, for almost 250 years, America has been an experiment, aspiring at our best to be a shining city upon a hill, casting beacon lights of freedom, equality, and opportunity. Out of our darkest hours over history, we've seen, as Lincoln called it, the better angels of our nature maintain many of those bonds of affection. But as I sit here now, and I think for many of us, there's a wrenching feeling that the American experiment is failing before our eyes. I think for it to finally succeed, we've got to boldly and bravely confront the long legacy of racism, bigotry, and all means of othering our neighbors. You know, before bandaging a wound, you must first clean it out. That process is painful, but necessary to healing. And so indeed, I pray that we'll one day recognize these horrific events from the pandemic to George Floyd to so many others as the groanings 
of rebirth, that through this hurting we'll find healing, that from this pain will emerge possibility, that together we can create the life and country. That leaves us with a really big question. It's not just a question for Pierce or Keith or Rodney. It's a question for all of us. Will the American ideal be a story of failure or will it be finally realized? That's up to us. Will we retreat into our comfortable homogeneous tribes and lash out or will instead we step out and bravely step forward into a different future? A future built on fresh, authentic relationships that weave a stronger social fabric in local communities and build bridges across our differences. If we choose the second path, I, here comes my optimism. I think we can transform that tide of rising rancor, deepening division, and increasing isolation into a wave of respect, connection, and belonging. We can inspire hope that Americans of all stripes can come together to solve our shared challenges, that out of many, we will finally become one. I just want us to imagine together a future in which we first looked at one another with eyes of common humanity, instead of through a dark lens of prejudice and partisanship, that instead of combatants, we saw compatriots. Imagine a nation in which we looked on our neighbors with love and grace, regardless of color, cause, or vote. Toward those hurting in our midst, compassion. Toward those fighting for something we don't understand, curiosity. Toward those who don't see things the way we do, humility. Indeed, before speaking, listening. Before judging, learning. Before condemnation, conversation. A most timely Bible verse you know, speaks to the redeeming possibility through this pain. It says, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Similarly, author and our partner in the Weaving Community Campaign, David Brooks, says, we are in a valley now. It's an opportunity for a new birth. With small acts of bravery, caring, and connection, beginning today, my call to your listeners, to myself, to all of us, is that we together create those rivers in the desert and catalyze that new birth for our neighbors and our nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So may the great pause of recent weeks, may the great pain of recent days give way to a great reset in our land. Let's go there.